This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Do you remember the first time you saw a black model on the cover of a magazine or walk down a runway? Chances are Bethann Hardison had something to do with it. There is no one title that encapsulates Hardison's 50-plus year career in fashion. She entered the fashion world in the late 60s as a model before becoming one of the first black women to own a modeling agency. Throughout her career, she's rallied for diversity and is credited with helping to jumpstart and support the careers of models like Naomi Campbell, who calls her mom, Tyson Beckford, whom she discovered, and Iman, who considers Hardison a mentor. A new documentary chronicles Hardison's life and career. It's titled Invisible Beauty, which Hardison co-directed with documentary filmmaker Frederick Chang. Hardison has won many awards throughout her career, including the Council of Fashion Designers of America's Eleanor Lambert Founders Award in 2014, and recognition of her work championing diversity in fashion over three decades. Bethann Hardison, welcome to Fresh Air. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. You describe yourself in the film as like the first black, black looking model. Can you paint a picture of what you mean? How did your look differ from the status quo at the time during your modeling days? At that time, fashion models, there were girls of color. They were, you know, light-skinned brown or brown-skinned girls that, you know, they had hair that moved. I mean, they, <laughs> I hate to say it like that. And but, you had a, a short fro. Yes, yeah, exactly. I had a little natural. And the fact of it is, is that they, they were a little bit more... Um, you know, more appealing to a more conservative or maybe a more commercial. But mm-hmm. then along comes this little girl named Bethann, who is skinny, boy-like, not being really truly androgynous, but in a way look, could be, you know, because I wasn't trying to have makeup on and have, have hair pressed and all that. So I come along, and there are a few designers who were breaking the mold and liked me. I want to play a clip of you talking about what it was like for you then as as kind of the first black, black-looking model. <laughs> this is footage um, featured in the documentary of you. It was an interview from the 70s. Let's listen to a little bit. Nothing uh, in the white advertising pages or the white television or the beautiful blonde girl walking down the street ever made me want to look like her or be like her because where we came from, we had so much going on. Where did you come from? Brooklyn. But if I came from South Philly, sure. if I came... Community, just the community. It may have been the black community or whatever. You had your style. We are fashion girls. Not because we're involved with the fashion business. We just are because our great-grandmothers are. Exactly. Grandmother is, you know, if you did nothing else, you wore clothes and looked good. You know, if you never had money in the bank, we never worried about getting our teeth. We still look good on (laughs) That was a clip of Beth Ann Hardison speaking in the 1970s. It's featured in the new documentary about Hardison's life called Invisible Beauty. And Bethann, I just love how you say where we came from, we had so much going on. We were the it girls. I mean, you were in this fashion world that was certain it was the center of the universe as far as determining beauty and trends. And here you were saying, where I'm from, we are the tastemakers. I was talking about the people in the street, the people who lived in the buildings there next to me. Uh, I was talking about the people of Brooklyn. And that's what we were talking about when we were speaking of that. Um, remember... 
I grew up in a garment business. It wasn't so fashionable as we all talk about it like now because pop culture has made fashion like a tiny island with thousands more people on it. And the island hasn't gotten any bigger, but the inhabitants have. So for me, when I speak about this, we're talking about style. And mm-hmm. we don't need to, you know, look in the magazine to have style. We don't need to go out and buy a designer label in order to look good. And that's what it I was It was all around you. It was all around right. us. And yeah. it didn't have to be fancy. It just had, you just had to notice a guy's cordovan shoe or wingtip, or you noticed a man's double pleated pant and the belt he put on. You just noticed so many things, you know, and people just basically always looked nice. And if they didn't look nice, it didn't matter because they were funny. <laughs> <laughs> right. They were entertaining. Exactly. Right. They were characters. Yeah. Your first big break was for designer Willie Smith, who created Willie Wear um, in the 80s. And he put streetwear as we know it on the map. He saw that you were an it girl. He could see that in you. Had you considered yourself a model before then? Or oh, no, absolutely not. No. I, you know, look, I was, you know, a child tap dancer, and I was quite good at that and known for that. And so I would, you know, I I wanted to get on. I liked being on the runway. I loved being on the stage. So when he said it to me, it was fine. And I had already done a little bit of, you know, walking for, I think, uh, Bernie Ozer, who had, the, he was the head of uh, Federated Stores. Um, so he used to put on these shows for his his his, his um, buyers. And I, one day, taking the clothes over from my company, I saw what he was doing, and I really want, I love being on stage. And I just sort of said, well, you know, if you really want to have someone good, you should hire me. And by the time I got back <laughs> to my office, my the women I worked for, who was Sylvia and, and Ruth, they were so excited for me. They were always excited for me. This is what's so interesting about growing up and watching people believe in you before you believe in yourself. And then when I told them that Willie wanted me to be, you know, work with them, I were had a full-time job. They were always so excited. They said, yes, you have to do that. Oh, he's a young, young, upcoming designer. He's great. Do it. So I would have my full-time job, and I'd go off and do these little things. Yeah, You know, it was just... Um, it was a call, but I just basically never, you know, was thinking, oh, this is something I want to do. I was just doing it for the joy of it. I think, like, when we look back and read all of these names, like reading Willie Smith and all of the other folks that you worked with, it's like, wow, these are larger-than-life people today as we look back. But in the moment, you all were young, scrappy folks, like, just creating something, right? And you have no idea how much I love that word, scrappy. I have been yeah. using that word a lot lately. Because there are certain things you find that's unique if you can find something that someone, someone, or something that's scrappy. Yeah, back then it was just real, real. Like, you know, I say Giorgio San Angelo, you say Hall City. Oh, my God, you knew, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it sounds, it's a, it's a lot because it's true. There, It doesn't come around so easily to repeat these kind of people, you know, yeah. again. And, you know, when we say streetwear, yeah, we the reason why Willie was considered street because his clothes were found on the street. You would see Willie wear. These people who have streetwear brands, I never see any of that stuff. Other than Supreme and that logo, I don't recognize <laughs> anyone's stuff. Today, yeah. Today. You don't recognize It's just called streetwear. Today. So what is it? Yeah. Well, why is it streetwear? Because yeah. there's a T-shirt and a pair of pants. Willie's clothes, from head to t- you would notice it. You would say, oh, man, that's a Willie wear. And everyone had Willie wear back then. So that was unique. You tell this story in the documentary. Um, during a show, Southern buyers 
wouldn't even look up at you. They didn't look at me. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. I don't know if they, they just put their head down they, and they started talking and they were, like, they were so, I think they were so shocked by looking at me. They had never seen anyone in, because then those shows were done and, in, in you know, like in France, also like they're in Atelier, you know, it was right in the offices and the showrooms. And it was no music or anything. They had numbers, you know. The someone would call out the number of the uh, the of the uh, attire, and you know, you walk out the first time, and people are a little stunned. You know, the time you walk out there second time, they're not having it. They're very uncomfortable. When did you realize that this was happening? That they were putting their heads down. I mean, did you notice it right you, away? They, they, you 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 know, because I always I would look into into the audience. I look at people because that's the best way I felt. To, to connect, and you could just see them being uncomfortable. They were just uncomfortable. I felt, I felt bad for me, but I felt bad for them, too. <laughs> they were so uncomfortable. And then at some point, you know, by the second outfit, you know, Chester could see that I was really, you know, like I, I didn't think, I, I just wanted to go to the bathroom and never come out. It was just so, and I never thought it was, people say that to me. Did you, you, oh, they think when I'm telling the story that it, that it was because I was black. I didn't think it was because I was black. I thought it was because, mm. because I knew other, there were other models of color, you know. Like I said, once again, the conservative, nice-looking girls. I thought it was because I just was so odd-looking to them. Mm. And I was someone who just came along that just didn't look like what everybody else looked like at that time. So I just seemed a little, you know, there was something that was just hard for them to just grasp what was coming down there. I didn't want to go back out for the third one, and I think Chester felt that he came to me as he was so busy with everything else, and he just started telling me how beautiful I was and, and how, you know, just, you know, I, he just kept encouraging me because I had to go back out there, you know. I had to show the outfit. Uh, that was an experience that I always always remembered. You'd envision yourself as a samurai when you were walking the runway. And I, I love yeah. this because what did, what did yeah. a samurai kind of signify for oh, you? Oh, yeah, no, samurai, yeah. It was, it was really uh, Toshiro Mufuni. You know, he was, for me, I, you know, I grew up with Japanese uh, cinema. And, uh, yeah, Toshiro Mufuni was a wonderful actor. And he played in all those films. And it was just the way he moved through everything. And uh, it gave me the sense of, like, warrior sense. Um, and also purpose of uh, uh, lack of defeat. It was just a, a way of you're you're not trying to cause trouble, but if if trouble comes, you're there. You're able to defend yourself. So, whatever I did on that stage at the time, I always kept him in close in my head. And so the movement, when I say like there was one moment in the film, it shows where I'm just strutting, you know, just strutting through a moment, and that was because there was a moment that he could walk with such pride, but mm-hmm. also ability to be able to defy. And I think that's what I would think no matter what I was doing. Did you enjoy modeling? Oh, absolutely. Look, I'm a child tap dancer. I love, look, I ran track, <laughs> anything. <laughs> put me on the stage, put me in front of people and tell me to go. Yeah, man. No, uh-huh. I, I, yeah, of course. And, but remember, I was a runway model. I wasn't a print girl. So runway is is wonderful. It's the it's a roar of the crowd out there. You know, you you get out there and do you, and you you get all that, you know, appreciation, immediate appreciation, especially back then. Is it almost like a different set of skills that you? It's it's the same. It's in the same family of skills, but there's a little bit of a different kind of showmanship of being on a 
runway versus being in front of a camera? Back then, definitely, because people really expected you to, you know, bring it. They they needed you to put on the clothes and bring who you were in it to make the clothes feel like that woman watching the editor or whoever could recognize that this really works on a body or this really works on a person or this person really loves what they're wearing. It isn't. It didn't get to be like that after a certain time. It changed. But yeah, no, when we had, and we could do anything. You could do anything. I, I, one time I remember I wore a plaid, just a simple plaid shirt. They never gave me the greatest clothes. They always said, Beth Ann will make it work. And I hated that because I was narrow hip. I didn't have a, you know, I didn't have a body. Was this because you were going to bring it? You're going to bring your showmanship. So they, yeah. yeah, that would be the thing. So put it on Beth Ann because Beth Ann will make it sell. And I remember it was the first time Calvin Klein had showed outside of his his uh, office, and he got a loft. And Calvin was an incredible marketer, and he built this runway and stuff. And it was the music was so good, and I had this just simple plaid shirt and a pair of pants. And I walked out. That song hit. I danced the whole runway. The people went crazy. That's when people had no—they weren't shy. We had enough people that were in the audience that really knew how to applaud and yell. (laughs) So we had—you know, that was a moment, and and it was so funny because it was told to me because Jeffrey Banks at the time was his assistant. He said, that shirt sold like you couldn't believe. And it's just those are the moments you feel so good about. I was really struck by how all of the models you worked with, Naomi, Iman, Tyson Beckford, they all describe you as not just a good agent, but as kind of like a protector. What types of things did you do to guide them? I only represented, technically, Tyson Beckford. Naomi was someone that I did meet when she was 14 years old with her parents in uh, London because her agent then, who had just discovered her, contacted me. My agency was new. She liked the style of what I was doing, and she trusted me, so she thought maybe Naomi should be with me when she comes to New York. Um, And she didn't wind up coming to my agency, but she wind up coming to me as a human because she wanted—I was the only person she knew in New York. She was only, at that time, 16, and so she stayed close to me because she felt some sort of kinship with me. Iman came to America, and we connected right away as well. But I never represented her as a model, but I, I, was a, I was a good guide for her. When times she had questions, she wanted to ask things, yes. They both had that with me. Um, uh, and I just think that they both had it going on in a lot of ways because they were both beautiful and undeniable to the white eye so that there wasn't that much of a problem for them to do well. But they had to competitively do well, meaning that if they if someone booked them, you know, they'd have to work maybe three times as hard as maybe their white counterpart. That was something that they were capable of doing. But Naomi was something, Iman too, she knew her value, so she stood strong for herself. And Naomi, as a very young girl, was I always called her my buffalo soldier because uh, Naomi came, you know, fighting on arrival, fighting for survival. She always stood up for herself since time she was a teenager. She, If she ever dared hear that someone was getting more money than her, she would... She, you, you, you'd be sorry you're her, you're her agent because she would <laughs> give you a hard time. During your time as an agent, when you owned your modeling agency, 
you represented all models. You didn't just represent black models. And I'm just curious what the competition between agencies was like. How how did you fit into that competition? <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah, the, yeah, that's a good news. I, I I basically that's you know there's a lot of things I'm learning as this because of this project and because of talking to someone like yourself. There's things you have to reflect back on, and you know. In hindsight, would you have done it this way? What did you do? What was your ambition? All those words that people ask you. But I, I basically knew that I had to uh, just do me. And I knew that I knew not to have a, a black model agency for sure because I didn't think anybody would call for that. I had to have what was going on. I had to compete with my white counterpart. So I, had to, I knew to have um, exactly what they had, but I also would have more than they had. So I would have you know, the Asian kids or Latin's kids or, you know, black kids. I would have that already, but they would be good. And so I really, really knew how to compete. And then they would start to think that they, if I had that and I was beginning to work, that maybe they should have one of those too. And then slowly (laughs) they start to steal. And they start to, you know, if I thought I was getting a girl from London, one girl I really wanted so badly... And once they found out I was getting her, an agency that had bigger girls, you know, was much more well-known. I was more like the boutique agency. They would go right in and snap her right up. You started your modeling agency in 84, but before that, you actually worked for Click, which was this agency that was well-known for providing kind of like this alternative to the Nordic look that was popular at the time. Well done. While you were at Click, you represented a young Whitney Houston? Oh, yeah. Oh, you know that. You have to tell the story of how that came about. <laughs> yeah, Jean, her, 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 her agent at the time, yeah, he, he brought her to us. And uh, he, he, he really liked me. So even though I wasn't the owner of the agency and I wasn't the number one, it was just, it was Francis who owned it and then Alan Mendel, who was also a partner of hers, and her son, Joey. They were the three, and then I came in because she had asked me to, you know, join them for a while, and I did. But Gene liked me. He, he, something about me he liked. So my relationship with Whitney became a little bit more personal between us, um, and so that was a great thing. And she, you know, he was just beginning to get her to sing. Um, and so this was just a way of trying to see if he could make money, she could make some money while they were trying to develop her career as a singer. And then eventually we did some good things. She did some good things for me because Whitney was someone, every time I call, I have to say, Sissy, is she awake? Is she awake? <laughs> Sissy being her mother, Sissy Houston, right. Yes. Is she awake and ready for a call? Yeah. Yes. Because she, she said, Sissy said, oh, hold on, Beth Ann. And she'd go and, and get her. You know, she wasn't always, because uh, she, was, she was an artist at that point, you know. Um, yeah, she was just doing modeling to make ends meet until she could become a recording star. But did you hear her voice while she was modeling for you? Had you heard her voice? I had never heard anything, but I remember... She would tell me when she performed a night at, at a, a club or someplace. And then Gene came to me and telling me that he had a meeting with Clive Davis and he had another meeting, and he wanted my opinion of where she should go. And I was very much interested in the music business then. And so I told him he should, take, he should go with Clive. He was really trying to decide. 
And ah. it, and and I I really felt like when you know when it happened that I had a little something to do with that to do with it. Yeah, yeah right. it the little, rest is history. Yeah, yeah. Because Whitney Houston went on to sign with Clive Davis, and he was a partner for a very long time. Very long time. He was a big protector, and I stayed. You know, as time went on, I you know she had me. She always identified with me more than anybody else in the company. And then she, when the time when she got with Bobby, she had me come. She, she had me come to the wedding, and you know, I always stayed her in touch with, with Bobby Brown. Yes, yeah. thank you. And I, I basically have always I stayed in touch with her off and on throughout until she was no longer. You know, until she passed away. Our guest today is Beth Ann Hardison, co-director of a new documentary titled Invisible Beauty, about her 50-plus year career in the fashion industry. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado, here with yet another plug for our Fresh Air Plus bonus episodes, just for our Fresh Air Plus supporters. Apple announced a new iPhone this week, which made us think of Terry's 1996 interview with Apple's Steve Jobs. It turns out that uh, companies, when they really want to vend you know, information about their products or services, or they want to start doing commerce on the web, really need to start building these web pages dynamically based on, you know, what the consumer wants. We dig deep into this interview from over 25 years ago to hear how this personal computing legend imagined the kind of internet we might have one day, and in many ways already do. To hear more, subscribe for yourself by going to plus.npr.org or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Beth Ann Hardison. Over the span of more than 50 years, she served as a model, designer, and a model agency owner, representing some of the top models in the industry. She's also been a champion of diversity. She's the co-director of a new documentary about her life and career titled Invisible Beauty. You know, I've been thinking about something you, you said in this film ever since I heard it. In this relation for you to push for diversity... You said, I'm not trying to help black people. I'm trying to help white people. They are the ones who need help. Can you elaborate on what you mean there? Yeah, I, I, it, it's I, the results of what I'm going to do in my mind was going to help all races and especially blacks. Those who were being underserved or suppressed at the time were those who were black in my industry. I was using the industry to see if I could do better even to affect the rest of the world. But I knew that who was in charge is 
the white population. Um, I, I do well in a white world because Bethany, everyone respects me, likes me. I do well. That's good. But at the end of the day, when I'm having a business and you can see the product change, you, you, you get smart about what's going on. And I want to go right back to one thing, what I didn't say. You say about educating white people. I just want to say that it's very important if you're that person that if you can get to them when they're making and going down a rabbit hole and explain to them something they're doing because you have the confidence in who you are and they have respect for you, you're trying to help them to do better so our society could be better because they're the ones who really are basically in charge. They're the ones who are in the majority. Mm. They're the ones who can determine something or not. They could take it away. They can give it to you. So the whole idea is to help them to understand that our whole social environment would be better if we all got along and we can all integrate with each other. That's the reason why I do it. One thing, I think I almost screamed when I saw just a little clip of it in the documentary from The Wiz, which is the 78 reimagination of The Wizard of Oz and the Emerald City sequence, which is one of the best scenes in the film, which is like they there's the song The Color Is, and it's a dance scene when all of the dancers change their clothing color. It is a fantastical scene. And we learned from the documentary that you were one of the dancers. I just want to know how it came to be that you were in this scene. Well, to be even clearer, I wasn't one of the dancers. I was one of the residents of Emerald City. Ah, okay. Even more fascinating. It's more yes. fascinating. Uh, yeah. This was um, Cindy Lamet and um, Joe Schumacher. And Joe Schumacher was a creative helping him with this show. And it was very interesting because, you know, there are certain people that they just knew they wanted to have to be part of this Emerald City. And I came in, they were doing auditions. It's funny, I never forget getting to the office. And right away, as soon as I got there, you know, you sit down, wait for your turn to be called because you have a number. And as soon as they said, does Beth Ann Hardison get here yet? I heard them say that. <laughs> and I, I thought, ooh. They, I said, yes, I'm here. They said, please, please come in. And I went ahead of all the other people who were sitting there. And it was just that, you know, Joel knew that he introduced me to Sydney and he knew that I just needed to be in it. And at the time, I was already close to his wife, Buckley. His wife was the daughter of Lena Horne. Mm. So I had friendship with her already anyway because of Lena and also her daughter. And so he's married to Sydney and Sydney said, oh, my God, I've been dying to meet you. My wife only talks about you. So I was already to be part of it. It was a great experience, uh, straight up. Uh, because of the <laughs> well, it, no, no, not I mean, because it's of results. Yeah, not because yeah. of the results of it was, but also the daily of it. You know, the rehearsing, being there with Quincy, uh, being there with Michael, and having to, you know, Michael would have and I would have lunch every day. Michael Jackson, Max, thank you. Talking about, yeah. yeah, because he's shy, and everybody didn't want to approach him anyway because he's so shy. But he and I would sit and have lunch together. Or Quincy would ask me, you know, I would go to the store for Quincy. You know, it was just an interesting, and Diane always, every time I'd get up to do rehearsal, Diane was screaming, go, Bethann, go. It was just fun. <laughs> it, was, it was a fun thing. And, and it, it, it's a, these are a lot of nice moments that happened. You know, you're right about what you said earlier, that all the things that we did back then, we, we, make it, we sound so cavalier about it, like, oh, you know, and then I was sitting there with Truman Capote, and then I was sitting, you know, I mean, it, it sounds so, but it's just the way it was. It's just the way it was. I mean, Quincy Jones produced the musical score for The Wiz and the soundtrack. And, of course, Michael Jackson played the Scarecrow. And Diana Ross was Dorothy. What a moment. Yeah. What a 
what an experience to have. It's true. And they showed it in the park in Brooklyn just last week. So it was very nice. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that I still get residuals for. Can you imagine? Oh, you do? I still Like, get... is it a lot? No. But, <laughs> but it's the idea that it still comes. You know, yes. $140 here. I mean, all the time. I mean, every couple of months you get another check. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that's it's... the nice thing about, you know, those kind of things that people are fighting for right now. Um, but it, it it was a really wonderful experience. A lot of nice things like that happened along the way. I want to talk with you for a moment about your childhood. You were raised in Brooklyn with your grandmother and your mother before moving with your father. Before I ask you about the experiences with your with your family, you were in a gang from the time you were nine until you were 12. And I think we have thoughts about what a gang is, is, but like, what was this gang that you were a part of? And what kinds of stuff did you all do? It was um, the chaplains, and I was part of the lady chaplains. And the chaplains was a five-borough gang that, you know, had, um, you know, had a, I guess that's what you say, um, mainstay in each one of the boroughs, and they were known. And so what did we do? You know, it's more like silly stuff like you can't go in the wrong neighborhood, you get beat up. You know, those are things that happened back then with those gangs. It's not like the gangs today that just kill people. I mean, we didn't, even when we had a gun, it was like a, a zip gun, you know, something that somebody put a barrel and found the wood and they made something. It is. Did we, you have one? I never had one. No, 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 no. But I did get, you know, one was put in front of my face on the street of my block. My God, and these kids came in and they invaded our, our neighborhood and we had to stand up to them. Um and they were the stompers, and they were a crazy gang. They were really bad. We were good compared to them. And I, you know, chose to be the war counselor. This is so crazy. This shows you how young people are. And the war counselor is someone who protects their, you know, their people. And they'll stand up in front of and take the first hit if they have to. They, they're the ones. And this gang comes into the streets, and this is crazy. My mother's at work. I'm out, you know, doing my thing in the afternoon. And there they are. They come in and they're beating each other up. We're fighting. And I go up and I walk in front of them and I said, you know, shoot me, not my people. That kind of stupid thing that kids can do. You're just silly. You know, <laughs> with the things we used to do, is jumping in the train tracks and running down the train tracks, hanging on the back of the trolleys and buses. I mean, things that people do that, oh, it's dangerous stuff. But, you know, you can do it when you're a kid because you have less fear. So in this case, you know, you just stand there and you don't think anything's going to really happen. And this guy pulls out this zip gun. A zip gun is a part of a barrel of a real gun and maybe some wood and it's bandaged together and all. And he put it in my face and I just had no thought that it could work, that he could, that I would go anywhere, that I would die. I don't know why. But it didn't work because it, it, it didn't, the, the gun didn't work. It just didn't work. But Lord knows, the, you know, in the neighborhood, they saw me. Everybody right. in the block said, you know, you don't get away with nothing back in the day because your parents are the entire neighborhood. Right. They, they talk with everybody, right? They the, get all the information. They see yeah. you and they go and report you or they tell, you, they, they, they tell your parents or they reprimand you themselves to the point you don't ever want to do anything again. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, once my mother learned this stuff that I was doing, she was like, what are you thinking? Yeah. 
but I, I, you know, I continued on gently until I got to my father's at 12. But he was very cool. He, he just felt like, I guess he must have been wise enough to think, you know, less said best and it will go away. And it did. Well, you went to live with your father when you were 12 and you call your father an intellectual. And his main goal with you was to raise your consciousness. What did that look like? It was different. My father was an imam, you know, so he was a religious leader of the Muslims, um, Islamic leader. Um, he was a, a Orthodox, a Sunni Muslim, not not Elijah Muhammad Muslims, um, food of Islam, not that. He was influential with that, you know, because he knew Elijah and he also knew Malcolm. Malcolm X. They would come to your house sometimes. Malcolm has come to the house t- uh, twice that I saw um, to have some counsel with my father. Um, but he was that guy. He he was, you know, he knew he had to take me at his responsibility was before I turned 13 and just to to be able to put things into my to my mind that normally he knew my mother and my grandmother couldn't. They were, you know, good people, and he that's why I stayed with them though so long. But he had many things to teach me, and everything from reading, writing, learning about politics, you know, you know, using how to use your power to to do things, to change things. Some people say to me when they see that, know that, did you think your father had an influence on you that made you the person that you are? Well, I may fall from, I'm, I may have his DNA, yes. But I don't. I never think of it that way. I don't realize it that that way. But he, you know, he had me send, you know, uh, when, when the Suez Canal was a, a big problem, uh, you know, he'd have me send uh, telegrams to the John Foster Dulles at the time. And, you know, he was a politician who basically oversaw, you know, the Suez Canal crisis and all the Middle East things. And I, I, you know, I learned so much from my dad. When you think about things that he was so forward, like, you know, even from juicing. I mean, people said, you juice back then? Yeah. My father was very much that guy. He was always interested in doing better or learning more and doing that. He was, he was a great uh, leader, too, because people had a great deal of respect for him. A lot of musicians who had turned Muslim would come to see him, and I got to see a lot of that. So he, it was a stricter environment, yes, for sure. And my stepmother was really, uh, you know, she was a real pain because she resented my mother, so I, she took it out on me. I liked her in a lot of ways because I got to learn what a great woman is behind a man, and I saw that. Did your father have expectations for your your role as a woman? No, I think he just wanted to make sure that I had all the right stuff. He didn't tell me what you know he did. He just reminded me that no matter what happens, remember you're the queen. He learned he taught me that you know you learn how to take care of your man, but remember who you are, and things like that. You know he he taught me how to you know cut his hair. He taught me how to tie a tie. My stepmother made sure I learned how to the basics of good cooking. You know, he wanted me to just have the right things you need to get through the life. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is Beth Ann Hardison, former model and activist whose work in the fashion industry spans more than 50 years. She's the co-director of a new documentary about her life called Invisible Beauty. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. 
And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. In this work to increase representation, though, I mean, you've been at this a long time. So you've seen that there's this desire for black and brown models that comes in waves. It's almost like a trend in itself. How do you contend with the up and down of it? Because this is more expansive than even the modeling industry. We see diversity initiatives more broadly come in waves. Some people feel like we're at a wave now where we may be reverting back. I don't think we're reverting back on the visual of the fashion model. I think you're reverting back since the Black Lives Matter movement happened and it affected corporations and fashion and, and music and film. You know, it made everyone feel like, oh, yes, you know, because it wasn't a black movement. It was an integrated movement. It was white kids out there, a lot of white kids out there trying to make a difference. And God, we're not going to stand for this and this is wrong. And they're right. So it, it's really actually at this given point. As far as the fashion model, she's well covered. I mean, she and he of color, is they're in it. You could see from the advertising, from editorials, from fashion shows, they are in. Finally, the industry has embraced the girls and boys of color. Do I ever sometimes think that that can revert back? Yeah, I keep my foot on the clutch a little bit. But I don't worry about it as much as before. What is changing is the corporate situation behind the scenes, where they were really being very giving and all the money and da da da, and let's help this. Now that's pulling back. Now why is it pulling back? Well, you know, everything comes down to money. If you can generate it, you will last in it. If you're if you're smart enough, especially in my industry, talking about design and all, if you're smart enough to be able to to be able to know how to manipulate the world that you go into, which is in retail and wholesale, if you can get through that, because it's a tough business, no matter if you're black, white, Asian, Latin, it's a tough business. So that's going to be a difficulty for people. But in the end of the day, I do think it is changing because corporately, you know, look how many DEI executives have been let go recently. Yeah. Does this change your optimism for the future? No. No, it doesn't change my optimism for the future because I've always seen it like this. I've always realized, always, that this is another person's ball game. We're the players in it, but we're not the umpires. Let's just put it like that. So it means that there are people who can determine your future, can determine your destiny, because they are in charge of an industry. 
But in the end of the day, that's how it's always been. And if we're lucky enough to be able to spend past that time and really be that one that they desire and want, because you know what? You're making money for yourself or them, or your product is worth it, you'll remain. There's this part in the documentary where Tyson Beckford is asked, who's going to carry the torch when you're no longer here? And you said, the rest of the people. Can you say more about what you, what you mean there? I do believe that, you know, we don't have, you know, that's why when people ask me, you know, they see the film and they feel they want to go home and change their life and do things like me. And I say, please, please, especially young people, the younger ones, like in their 20s and on, they ask me, what do you think we should do, walk away with? And all I want them to do is just vote. I, 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 you can't, you, you, I didn't start out wanting to be this person that I wind up being. I didn't have any intention of anything that you see. It's just that that was my calling. And I want other people to recognize you don't have to do what the other guy does, but the things that we should do is to help what we can change in our own destiny that we can control. So if you do anything, just go out and vote. Because the rest of it is like, you know, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? How are we going to get there? Oh, my, I want to be like that. I want to go home and figure I need to get better. Well, just vote. <laughs> it's a simple thing you can do. Um, you, you learn a lot about yourself when you, you write a book or you make a film, especially if it's about yourself. And I've learned a lot about myself from, from not from the film so much, but more from the audiences, the things that people say, uh, the questions that they, they bring to the table, the things that they say about what they get from the film. So I, I'm, very, I'm very taken with that to know how to be even more conscious of myself and what I go forth and what I want to do going forward. And what I want to do going forward is not a whole lot because it's not like based on ambition. It's just based on inspiration. Beth Ann Hardison, this has truly been a pleasure. Thank you so much for this conversation. It means a lot for me to have been here. Beth Ann Hardison is a former model, activist, and co-director of the new documentary about her life and career called Invisible Beauty. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. Like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stamps.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
Today is the 50th anniversary of the coup that replaced Chile's elected president Salvador Allende with a military dictatorship. As it happens, this past weekend has seen the theatrical release of two new films by Chilean directors, Sebastian Silva's Rotting in the Sun and Pablo Larraín's El Conde, which will drop on Netflix this coming Friday. Our critic at large, John Powers, says that both offer smart, entertaining glimpses into the legacy of the 1973 coup. If you live in Chile, the date September 11th means something very different to what it does in the United States. You see, on that day in 1973, a coup d'etat, backed by the U.S. government, ousted Chile's democratically elected socialist president, Salvador Allende. Led by General Augusto Pinochet, the military junta governed as a dictatorship that, over the next 17 years, murdered and disappeared thousands. This year marks the coup's 50th anniversary, and in commemoration, Chile's young president, Gabriel Boric, has announced a national plan to discover the fate of those who went missing in order to give their families some sort of peace. Not altogether coincidentally, I suspect, two audacious new Chilean movies are just now being released in our theaters. Made by filmmakers who weren't even alive in 1973, these films suggest how Chile has and hasn't escaped its past. The presiding figure of the junta, Augusto Pinochet, lies at the center of El Conde, a funny, creepy new film that's currently in theaters, but hits Netflix on September 15th. Made by Pablo Larraín, who directed Natalie Portman in Jackie and Kristen Stewart in Spencer, this highly polished movie weaves historical facts into a genre-busting horror comedy. In a cheeky impersonation, the story is narrated by Pinochet's friend, the late British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. El Conde means the count, and not just any count. It's the film's conceit that Pinochet is a vampire, one who didn't really die in 2006, as the world believed, but lives in a huge seaside hacienda, along with his vicious wife, Lucia, and his ex-Nazi manservant. He's been surviving on frozen human hearts that he turns into smoothies in a blender. But as the action begins, he started flying like a bat into the city for fresher prey. These forays don't pass unnoticed, and soon people start turning up at the hacienda. First is children, a dim and corrupt quartet who want Dad to finally croak so they can get the millions he squirreled away in foreign accounts. Their arrival is followed by that of a beautiful, spiritually pure nun whom the kids believe is an accountant who's come to help track down the money. In fact, she's been sent by the Catholic Church for reasons of its own. What follows is a Bunuelian comedy of furtive romances, fangs in necks, and the Pinochets chatting away about the money they stole and the people they had killed. While the plot doesn't make perfect sense, at least not to me, the film is extremely entertaining, with exquisite black-and-white photography by Ed Lockman and bursts of weird poetry. Beneath the deadpan gags and visual beauty, El Conde is making a grave, even angry point about Chile. In portraying Pinochet as a vampire who still keeps taking people's blood, Larraín is suggesting that half a century on, his country isn't yet free of his brutal legacy. There's nothing so politically pointed in Sebastián Silva's Rotting in the Sun, a hilarious, ultra-contemporary comedy about social class, artistic narcissism, and an online culture that gives us the attention span of gnats. Handheld and bouncy, and frankly a bit too long, it's as freewheeling as El Conde is formally precise. 
Set in Mexico, the movie stars Silva as an unlikable version of himself, who, when not complaining about his film career, talks of suicide. Bored, he goes to a gay beach awash in ketamine and full-frontal male nudity. There he meets real-life social media celebrity Jordan Firstman, who plays a clownishly bubble-headed version of himself. Firstman wants Silva to work with him on a fatuous project. But before they can start, Silva vanishes in Mexico City. Firstman sets off to find out why his new friend has stopped answering his texts. Now, Rotting in the Sun starts off as something of a lark in the early Almodovar vein. Yet Chileans know the dark side of disappearances, and once Silva vanishes, the tone shifts. A character we thought of as minor, Silva's maid Vero, wonderfully played by Catalina Saavedra, moves to the center. Fearful she'll be blamed, Vero becomes the anxious working-class counterpoint to the spoiled men whose selfish silliness she must serve. Where El Conde's elegant genre mashup slides neatly onto the Netflix playlist, Rotting in the Sun has the transgressiveness of a midnight movie. Yet the two share something in common. In their subversive energy and their cutting satire of the privileged, Silva and Lorraine show that the junta's attempt to impose a docile, conservative Chilean culture didn't, in the end, succeed. John Powers reviewed El Conde and Rotting in the Sun. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, shows and movies like The Office, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Arrested Development, Freaks and Geeks, Family Ties, and Bridesmaids all have one person in common, Allison Jones, the casting director. She's widely credited with finding the actors who ushered in a new era of comedy. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. Reporter Shurak directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR.